I know many of us have been reflecting on the events of September 11th, 2001, this weekend, as we find ourselves at the 20th anniversary of this day that changed our world forever. Mark Dowell reached out to me this weekend and shared a story from 9-11 that I hadn't heard before. It's from the transcript of the conversation between Todd Beamer, who was a passenger on American Airlines Flight 93, and a phone operator named Linda Jefferson. Their conversation would become one of our fullest accounts of what actually happened on the planes that day. Todd quietly but boldly explains the situation, that hijackers have taken over their plane and they are heading toward Washington, D.C. Todd and a few other passengers decide that they are not going to be pawns in another attack on the United States, and they devise a plan to rush the hijackers to try to take control of the plane. There isn't much time for this, and Todd tearfully asks the operator to call his wife and children for him. But before he hangs up, he says, Linda, will you do one last thing for me? He asks her, would you pray with me? And in this terrifying and gut-wrenching moment, together, thousands of miles away from one another, they offer the words of the Lord's Prayer together. Mark Dow said to me, in these moments, as life flashes before one's eyes, a prayer surfaces, one that brings comfort. When words fail to form and tragedy is too great to imagine, the Holy One arrives and prays for us. And so as we remember this day 20 years ago and all that it holds, I would like to invite us to pray these words that Todd and Linda prayed together that day, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We are continuing to make our way through the Lord's Prayer here at Highland. And today we approach the part of the prayer that is about forgiveness. We are a people who have been radically, generously, overwhelmingly forgiven. This is so important to us that we create space for it every week in worship here at Highland. In the prayer of confession, we make a practice of naming each week the ways we have fallen short, but also naming the God who forgives and liberates and sets us free. And as the Lord's Prayer reminds us, we are called to be people who live into that forgiveness. And yet, as I begin today's sermon, I quickly want to name that forgiveness is complicated. 
So in some of the words we have said together throughout COVID, I'm going to invite us to say them together again this morning, that we are going to get through this. We are going to get through this together. Forgiveness. We might say these words of the Lord's Prayer over and over again. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And they roll off our tongue so easily. But the act of forgiveness is just not that easy, is it? And I am mindful that especially within a community of faith like ours, Many of us who have been wounded by previous experiences in churches or by people with power over us or by experiences of abuse and deep hurt and pain, the quick call of the church to just forgive it all can feel insensitive, abusive, and even dehumanizing. Especially when I read a text like this one in the Bible where Jesus tells Peter not to forgive just seven times, but 77 times, my mind immediately floods itself with questions like, is that enabling to forgive someone over and over and over again that many times? I mean, at what point do we need to set better boundaries and say, okay, enough is enough, no more? Or when does forgiveness become meaningless and possibly even do more harm than good? I mean, is forgiveness just sweeping things under the rug, the very kinds of things that really need to be brought out in the light of day? What about accountability? What about justice? In a wonderful essay called Unpacking Forgiveness, Debbie Thomas writes, I am hyper aware of how forgiveness is sometimes deployed by Christians to fend off questions about power, justice, repentance, and lament. This is especially true right now in the United States where the pressing call for racial equality and healing is too often met in the church by premature demands for forgiveness. Often, and to our shame, we Christians turn to the concept of forgiveness and we use it as a weapon, trying to silence people who are crying out against injustice. And so as we dive into forgiveness together today, I'd like to share a few disclaimers. Inspired by Thomas's article, which will also be linked in the comments today if you're watching online or if you want to go back and read it. It's an incredible work. First, she says that forgiveness is not denial. It's not avoiding, diminishing, hiding, or delegitimizing what happened. After all, you can't ask for forgiveness without owning what happened and your part in it. It's why when someone says, I'm sorry if what I did hurt you, or I'm sorry if you're offended by my words, they're really not asking for forgiveness because they're not taking responsibility for their part in what happened. Second, she says that forgiveness is not a shortcut, and it is certainly not easy. Theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer warns us we must never allow forgiveness to become simply cheap grace. And third, forgiveness is not synonymous with healing or reconciliation. 
She says healing has its own timetable, and sometimes reconciliation isn't possible. Sometimes our very lives depend on us severing ties with our offenders even after we've forgiven them. In this sense, forgiveness is not an end, it's a beginning. Forgiveness is the beginning of the hard work of building God's kingdom and not the end. And so it is with that understanding that I would like to approach forgiveness today That when we ask for or offer forgiveness, this is just the beginning of turning our lives toward the God who calls us to help bring about a world on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the most common way that we see forgiveness in the New Testament is through this idea of letting go, releasing someone from a debt or obligation. That's what we saw in today's parable, right? Bishop Callistos Ware says, Forgiveness means release from a prison in which all doors are locked on the inside. Those who are unforgiving, he explains, grasp, retain, and hold fast, but the forgiving let go. And for some reason, the servant in this story just isn't able to let go. But I would imagine that there are situations in which you and I might struggle to do the same. I was recently asked by a church member to preach about anger. Because I know that many of us are feeling especially angry right now due to the raging Delta variant. And the fact is that if more people were vaccinated... And wearing masks, if more people were listening to the medical community, and if more of our political leaders were doing the same, we would not be in this situation. This did not have to happen this way. And I'm angry about it. But instead, people are putting themselves, sometimes their ignorance, sometimes their own desire for individual freedom above the health of our community. And our children and families and the immune compromised are the ones paying the price for it. Our hospitals are full, many of them beyond where they were at the highest point of the pandemic last winter. Our medical community is beyond exhausted. And we have no idea how to find our way out of this mess. It didn't have to be this way, and it's infuriating. So if you are angry this morning, I think you find yourself in good company here. In fact, I would venture to say that if you're not mad, you're probably not paying enough attention right now. And like Jesus' anger at the disciples who tried to turn away the little children, I believe we are called to speak out against those who are doing the same right now. Like Jesus' anger that turned over tables in the temples, I believe we are called to turn our anger into action, to make some noise about the injustices that are happening right here in our own community and state. However, I don't know that mulling over our anger, letting it ride this never-ending Ferris wheel in our minds, or doom-scrolling through our social media feeds right now, I don't know that any of this does any of us any good. After all, I would be remiss to preach on the anniversary of 9-11 if I also didn't name what transpired in the days that followed, 
as people who were also stewing in their own anger about what happened, started committing hate crimes against our Muslim and Arab American neighbors. They skyrocketed. Hate crimes against Muslims rose 1,617% from 2000 to 2001, according to the FBI, marking some of the highest numbers of Islamophobic hate crimes ever in the U.S. I love something that Pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber says that I think addresses this idea. She says, maybe holding on to anger about the harm done to me actually doesn't combat evil. Maybe it feeds it. Because in the end, if we're not careful, we can actually absorb the worst of our enemy, and at some level, we start to become them. So what if forgiveness, she says, rather than being a way to say, oh, it's okay, is actually a way of wielding bolt cutters and snapping the chains that link us? What if it's saying what you did was not okay, but I refuse to be connected to it anymore? Forgiveness, she says, is about being a freedom fighter, and free people are dangerous people. Free people aren't controlled by the past. Free people laugh more easily than others. Free people see beauty where others do not. Free people are unafraid to speak truth to stupid. Free people... (laughs) I love that one. (laughs) Free people are not chained to their resentments, and maybe that's something worth fighting for. And that's what strikes me about the servant in this story. He could have been free. But do you notice the verbs that are used to describe his actions? He grabs the person who owes him money. He chokes him and throws him in prison. These are actions of grasping and clinging and holding on tightly to one's anger. And it's as if he is wound up so tightly with his anger that he just can't let it go. And so perhaps that's the best definition I can offer us today of forgiveness. It's an act of letting go in order for love to enter in. It's exactly what the master does in this parable. He releases. He lets go. The best picture I have of this kind of forgiveness comes from a family I dearly love back in Waco, Texas, at my former church. Their family story is very public. You can find it on CNN, Dateline NBC, 2020, and a couple books have even been written about them too. But even so, I have their permission to share their story with you today. Back in 2006, the Justice of the Peace in McLennan County, Texas, ruled that a woman named Carrie Baker had died by suicide in her bedroom in her family's home in a small town outside of Waco. Her husband, Matt Baker, was the pastor of the local First Baptist Church and a graduate of my seminary. The whole town was in shock and absolutely devastated. But Carrie's mother and father, Linda and Jim Doolin, who were members of my church back in Waco, and some of their friends and family just didn't think the pieces were adding up. Not to mention the fact that the justice of the peace ruled it a suicide over the phone that night without ever leaving the comfort of his own bedroom. 
And so what followed was a four-year struggle of Linda and her family urging the police to reopen the case, ultimately hiring lawyers and private investigators to help. Soon you saw these signs and stickers begin to pop up around town that said, Justice for Carrie. Several members of our church kept vigil outside the doors of the courtroom each day when the case did reopen until finally a state district court jury convicted Carrie's husband of murder in 2010. Now, I don't need to go into the details of their story. This is not the time or place. But my purpose of sharing this with you is so that you can understand the gravity of Linda's response to her former son-in-law in court. When Linda gave her victim impact statement at the end of the trial, you could hear a pin drop in the courtroom that day. Linda glared at Matt and demanded that he look at her as she shared the following words. She said, I'm talking to you today, Matt. You haven't looked me in the eyes for four years. Maybe you can do that for just a few minutes today. You took her from us, Matt. She said, you discarded her like she was yesterday's trash. You took her from Kenzie and Grace, her daughters too, and then you covered it up. She goes on to name some other ways that Matt had deeply hurt her family. But what she said next is what caught the world by surprise and would go on to be broadcast on news networks across the country. Linda said, thank goodness the journey doesn't end here. You see, Matt, you were never going to win this one. You spent your life preying on innocent people, but love trumps evil. Do you hear me, Matt? She said with tears rolling down her face. Love trumps evil. You have to spend many years in prison. What you did was horrific, she said, and I believe you're capable of much more. But we have to step out and forgive So we do, because that's the only way, Matt, because love always wins. You see, for Linda, forgiveness was not denial. Every day she had to wake up to the reality of what Matt Baker did and all that he took from her and her family. Forgiveness certainly wasn't a shortcut. It took her years to be able to say that. And it will be a lifelong journey for her as she cares for her grandchildren and now her great-grandchildren. And forgiveness was not reconciliation. She will never see or speak to Matt Baker again. But for Linda, forgiveness was the beginning of letting go of this unbearable weight that she had been carrying for the past four years. It was letting go of the power Matt had held over her for so long so that the next chapter of her family's life would be called love. And to this day, Linda Doolin is one of the strongest women I will ever know. Debbie Thomas ends her essay on forgiveness by saying this. She says, I think forgiveness is choosing to foreground love instead of resentment. If I am consumed with my own pain, if I've made injury my identity, 
If I insist on weaponizing my well-deserved anger in every interaction I have, then I am drinking poison. And the poison will kill me long before it does anything to anyone else. But to choose forgiveness is to release myself from the tyranny of bitterness. To trust that my frenzied longing for vindication and justice is known to God. To cast my hunger for healing deep into Christ's heart because healing belongs to him. And he's the only one powerful enough to secure it. And so, Highland family, may we live into this kind of journey of complicated and challenging and convicting forgiveness. Because what Linda taught me and what I believe to be true is that finding a way to forgive those who trespass against us allows love to take center stage. And love always wins. God's love is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.